I always say that uh, Fernand Branca is like the truth. Nobody likes the truth. But once you get the truth, you just want the truth. Once you update your, you upgrade yourself to a self-level conscious of appreciation, you either stay at the level or you grow, but you don't go back. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I am Chris LeBeau. Uh, This is a a fun episode we have in store for you today, so I'm excited for you to get to hear this one. But before I get into that, with the holiday season upon us, uh, I had an email come in from uh, a former uh, uh, student in class the other day, and I wanted to share what I shared with them. Uh, So it was an inquiry about uh, equipment for the home bar. And this woman wanted to know about buying stuff for what should she get for her husband? She said, hey, I already have this, uh, all this various gear um, that my husband has purchased through some basic online set. Will this work? Do I need something else? You know, using great quality uh, equipment is really nice. It's not wholly imperative, though. Uh, So you know, in class when I teach, uh, we use pint glasses. So you can use a pint glass. You can use a fancier uh, Japanese-style mixing glass if you want. Uh, some of the basic cobbler shakers, which kind of are those three-piece shakers that come in a lot of the basic online sets, I don't think are great. But will they work? Yes. The only issue I run into is sometimes they end up kind of fusing shut. So that's why a lot of times I recommend using what's called more of a tin-on-tin or a Boston shaker. The two pieces of equipment that feel pretty important for the average cocktail maker that I kind of wanted to share with you guys is I feel like having a jigger that you are very comfortable using is important. So um, all sorts of jiggers exist. As long as you have something you are comfortable measuring with and know the volume of it, uh, I recommend the OXO uh, Good Grips one. You'll see it my page at decodingcocktails.com slash gear. I also think it's very useful to have a great bar spoon. Uh, a lot of the basic ones that come out there with basic kits are not wound very tightly, which make them kind of awkward to hold. And frankly, if you're going to stir more than one cocktail, they're actually, they're actually even quite painful to use. Uh, so I highly recommend uh, those as two kind of more essential items. Obviously, buy whatever you want for people, use whatever you want. But those are two suggestions I have. My guest today is Nicola Olianis. He is the global brand ambassador for Fratelli Branca, which owns iconic brands like Fernet Branca, Carpano Antica, and Punta Mes, amongst many others. His role is really just to introduce and create as many believers in their products as possible, and uh, does this through a variety of tasting seminars and talks around the world. Uh, he has worked for the company since 2010 and lives in Milan, uh, which is the home to the distillery. Uh, His passion for this industry began very early. His father owned a bar, so he was uh, around it all the time, and began his own career in in the bar world around the age of 17, uh, and kind of tagged between that and coffee. And just before joining um, uh, Branca, he worked for San Pellegrino for five years. Uh, I... Uh, came in, came to be aware of Nicola this year at Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. He was giving a seminar and, you know, having done this as much as he has his, not only his knowledge of the product, but his control of that room uh, in a great way made him seem like a very compelling person. And so I was delighted when he agreed to talk. And so uh, that's kind of that, you know, to some of the things we talk about as well uh, here and there on the podcast getting back to the fact that so much of alcohol has its roots in medicine, I found it fascinating that uh, you could buy Fernet Branca in pharmacies in Italy 
until the 1940s because in addition to basic things like uh, digestion, uh, cholera uh, was something. Uh, so when the cholera epidemic was happening in Italy, uh, Fernet was at times used to help kind of stimulate the appetite uh, for people who were, you know, dehydrated and, you know, basically dying. So I think that's really a, a fascinating reminder of the roots of where all this stuff comes from. You know, two other little things I wanted to talk about. One, you know, this X factor that sometimes comes up with cooking and I think with cocktails or just hospitality is this this thing of love. And Nicola says at one point when he's talking about uh, his grandmother's green beans, this idea that she cooked with love and that we don't cook something, we cook for somebody. And it really is, you know, when you're cooking something, when you're making a drink, it will hopefully work. You don't know that it will, but it is that time invested in something that is naturally an imperfect thing, but done with care and attention uh, is important. So as we all, I'm sure, always look for other ways to connect with people in our lives, I think this is a very valuable reminder. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was we talking about Carpano, this idea that, you know, vermouth, Carpano is uh, by many intensive purposes the first vermouth that existed and so um, this product has been around for hundreds of years. And so Nicola takes time to talk about early on the idea between luxury and excellence. And that things like Branca, but also these vermouths, which we, I think intuitively in this culture, think of for martinis and Manhattans that, you know, he's quick to say, this is excellence in a bottle. So no need to overcomplicate it. Drink it on its own. Drink it with some ice. Drink it with some club soda that these are things that were, have been crafted and honed for hundreds of years. And so being excellence in a bottle, we don't have to do something fancy to it, quote unquote, in order to make it worthwhile. Just sit down and enjoy it. Uh, if you have trouble finding Fernet Branca, we need to work on your internet skills, but look them up, F-E-R-N-E-T Branca. Uh, you can find them on social or on their website. I will have links to that. Uh, when it comes to uh, Nicola, his uh, Instagram handle is underscore uh, Nick, N-I-C, Olianas, O-L-I-A-N-A-S underscore. Again, this will be linked to uh, in the show notes as well, um, but give him a follow as well. So that's what I've got for you guys today. Um, enjoy this conversation. <laughs> Nicola, thanks so much for taking some time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Hey, oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. So a place that I always love to start with questions are, is there a moment, and you know, growing up uh, in Italy, you might it might start early, but is there a moment you remember falling in love with this industry or deciding you wanted to, to work in it? Uh, well, kind of, uh, it's interesting that you asked me this because I, I was born in this industry. My father opened a bar uh, when I was like mm. five. Uh, so I kind of grew up. I still remember my father putting three chairs together so I could fall asleep while he was closing the bar down. Mm. Uh, I spent all my life in the bar, uh, like uh, just watching people like consuming this alcoholic beverage that I wasn't uh, allowed even to touch. Uh, so people getting a coffee and then getting a matzah cafe, which was the marrow after the coffee. People having a small aperitivo before going to work and then mm -hmm. after work coming back to the bar. So that was like, it was my life. It was my environment. And from that, I also learn from my father and the people working in this bar how to deal with different people and how interesting it was to have the whole world of people coming to you like the, the demographic the diversity of people coming to the bar was amazing it was like a social place so I was intrigued by that and it was like my uh, my safe spot it was my uh, my comfort zone was actually in the bar so this is where I grew up and then I started doing the first like uh, summer work in the north of Italy working as a washing up guy as a like, cleaner glass collector and then like eventually when I was 17 started to making my first drinks and then moved to England where I managed a bar for three and a half years it was a Jamaican Caribbean bar 
So I kind of like spend my own life within this in this industry. And now, you know, I kind of like felt that all this knowledge was interesting to have, uh, like using this knowledge for a company like a firm for Fratelli Branca, so to help them to understand the industry. And the way I was the guy in the beginning for this company was talking and speaking the same language of the industry. So we can, the company could communicate better to the industry and the industry could like really raise the, uh, uh, like requests to, to the company. So that was, I was a middleman. That's what I still am today. Mm, I, I got it. I follow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, and you're right. That's a, a fun early uh, start that certainly mm. helps give you a very long perspective on mm. that. Uh, you know, because you grew up in a bar and grew up Italian, one of the things I also found interesting that I don't know if you have some thoughts for people listening, but, you know, Branca has this vision of bringing uh, the whole world, the excellence, passion, and beauty of doing things the Italian way. So if if you were going to suggest like having spent time in America and in many corners of the globe, what are some ways that people might more do things the Italian way in their life? Well, to say that we have to clarify what we mean by Italian excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, and to understand that, we have to understand which is the difference between luxury and excellence. This is something mm -hmm. that I always say. Luxury is when you take a, when you have a very good product, but the scarcity makes it very expensive and only for few people. Uh, excellence is when you have a very good product, but you standardize the process of making it and making it available, so it's more available to many people. This is the excellence. This is what we do. Uh, is that when you standardize a process or make something easy and approachable, but still maintaining the high standard quality of the product itself. This is what we think uh, Italian excellence is and means to us. And this is a process we are still on today in our company after like uh, more almost 200 years. We haven't finished on pursuing the path of making our product available to as many people as possible, maintaining the high standard of quality within the products. So this is what, what, I, what I mean. And Branca wasn't my first like Italian company experience. I used to work for San Pellegrino before uh, Branca. And it was like a saying, like the Italian way of life, uh, you know, providing high standard quality water and brand and service and quality to as many restaurants as possible and to reaching as many people as possible with a high standard quality water. So that was that the, the, the thing that I, I feel we have uh, to pursue, maintaining the, the quality and the, and the quality is not only within the product, it's how you present the product, the, the effort of advertising the product, the effort to making people understanding the the product that is also quality you can do that with quality so this is what we do i i, I think uh, you know having spent some time in milan and in the north uh, i certainly uh agree that you know when people are looking for the magic behind uh italian the italian kitchen you know there's obviously this history and passion there but it's really this commitment to great ingredients that is more more of a recent rediscovery in the in places like the U.S. with food with drink, uh, and so yeah, that that kind of that reminder that uh, we often are looking for the shortcut or the uh, the, the the simple ingredient that we can uh, that the little packet of seasoning that will make the dish perfect as opposed to using the right sauce, the right pasta. To in, in the first place. Yeah, I see you there. But um, let me break uh, an arrow in favor of this as well. It's always a matter of what you have available and what you have access to and what you know. Uh, I actually see great example in, the, especially in the in the hospitality environment in the US with the restaurants with food and cocktails of people really making an effort and making research on the better way of doing things. Don't just stop in the first available uh, good or item to the market by going and 
dig on a better quality and doing try to try to local support the market by just lock by local food. I can see that happening. For us, it was something normal because this is the only thing we had available. So local food was the only thing we had available. So that's what we were sourcing that the local food because we didn't have like big supermarket or big chain supplying with foreign food mm-hmm. or for a food supply from different markets so there was something common uh, don't take me wrong you in italy we do good things but we also have mainstream approach and sometimes you find that because the market has driven people to make that choices because we're easier uh, to pursue there is a coming back on that we are being uh, people are re-educating consumer to have that type of approach and type of palate to understand the quality of it so it's really it's really like a, a thing what makes the difference is love we have to always remember that you never cook something but you cook for somebody uh, you never make a drink but you make a drink for somebody so that's that's that makes what makes the difference you know the food that my mother grandmother used to make was good because she was cooking for me and she was taking time to do it. I always make an example, you know, she used to make fantastic green beans. I never tried to, I always tried to understand the secret of those like green beans. And the secret was that she used to wake up at six o'clock in the morning to get the best green beans, the fresh ones. She wouldn't go out like two o'clock in the afternoon that when the leftover were there. And then she was cooking them slowly using good olive oil and good garlic. So she cared about every passage of that. And I can see that happen today. You know, like working in the restaurant environment is hard because you have to wake up early. It's not that you start when you open your bar or you open your restaurant. The job starts before. You're taking care of your customer way before they actually walk into your bar or into your restaurant. And then the same same as my grandmother used to do, she used to take care and think about me way before the lunch, day before I was like, going there for lunch. She was thinking what to cook and she was thinking what I like and how I like it cook. So it's caring, I think is one of the secrets, you know, uh, we have to care of that. Um, I had a great example, like back in the day, I was in Austin and I had a fantastic meal uh, by an American chef that used to live in Rome for eight years. Mm. I had like Italian cooking, Italian dishes, you know, and I was like a little bit skeptical, let me admit that. Uh, And instead I had some of the best reinterpretation of Italian food that I ever had in my life ever. And one of the lessons that I learned from this guy was that, you know, when you try to take like an original dish you don't re- you don't have to jeopardize the taste you don't have to like a, make a revolution on the dish you just have to re- i just have to repropose what are the, f- the taste and the and the flavors of your grandmother dish but they have to be presented by a chef mm. simple as that so that was a great a great signal for me and understanding that this is what about it, is that maintaining the original flavor intact same as for fernet you know we maintain the original recipe the original recipe, original flavors but we are commercializing that as a product for people so maintaining the standard of quality high that's what people are expecting but we don't jeopardize the whole idea that was behind Fernet Branca, the whole idea that was behind our products. We maintain that intact. We preserve that. We, we protect that because I think that our consumer and people need that guarantee of the quality to be protected and preserved. Mm. I love I love the story of love conveyed through green green beans at 6 a.m rather than uh yes. th- 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 than 2 p.m that's great makes makes a huge difference yeah and i can see chef, young chef doing that walking to market to choose the right ingredient you know and be selective on what they're gonna cook and what they're gonna have on their kitchen which is a mix between availability so they can replicate that dish but also quality and they don't make comp- they don't make compromise of that <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to talk about Branca in a moment, but first, as kind of a setting the table for people who might need uh, the relation a little bit. So uh, Fernet, to my understanding, Nicola, is kind of a, a subcategory of Amari. So, you know, more similar to, but still different than whether it's in Averna or Nonino or Montenegro. So compared to Amari, do you mind talking about what some of the more 
typical differences are between that and a Fernet, and then we'll dive into Branca, of course. Mm. Well, Fernet, uh, first of all, is not a subcategory, but it's actually was the category where everything started from. Okay. Uh, in a way that we're talking about like Amarissimi, like a real, everything starts from bitters, tinctures. Um, Fernet was the first step into a, a massive change into the category. So how do I take a medicinal and make it taste good so people can drink it neat. That was the milestone. Like that was the big step into the market because everything was born as a remedy. People were using herb and spice to cure themselves, but they were like undrinkable, un unapproachable. It was, they were really, they were, they had no palate at all, you know? And how do you make that? So Fernabraca was one of the first like Amaros and the first bitter in the market that people could also enjoy as a leisure product to enjoy, to drink and sip, still maintaining the characteristic of a remedy. You know, I was like, it was incredible how you could find, you could still buy a bottle of Fernabraca in pharmacies in the 1940s, 1950s in Italy. Mm. And the US by the 1920s, we were advertising Fernabraca as an aperitivo and digestivo. So it was like, you know, this is really, it was incredible. That was what amazed me the most about Fernet. So Fernet sets its own category. You know, if we have to divide the category by merchological category, uh, Amaros is, are all those products that have between 30 grams and 100 grams of sugar per liter. Uh, so infuse of urban spices, alcoholic infuse, hydroalcoholic infuse, uh, whatever, you know, this is, every, everybody used his own methods. These are a pure grain alcohol base, uh, grappa base, so eau de vie base and so forth. Uh, then you have like bitter liqueurs. Okay, what we have in the market today mainly are bitter liqueurs. So Amari by category, by definition, but they are liqueurs by as a methodological category because they have anything between 100 grams and 300 grams of sugar per liter that we can define them as a liqueurs. They are bitter okay. liqueurs, Amaro liqueurs, but they are liqueurs. And then you have the crepes, you know, creme de cassis, creme de cacao, creme de menthe, like everything between 300 and over. Fernets, uh, Fernabranca specifically, is below 30 grams of sugar per liter. So there is this big difference. So you kind of like, uh, how do you man, how do you create something that has no sugar at all? which is like sugar is a modifier it's also preservative so it preserves the flavors but also modify and stabilize the recipe how you create something that is good and approachable without having no sugar at all so that is the technique you know this is where the magic comes when you manage to create something like that and it's a matter of balance so finding the right balance without or within between all the ingredients and let the ingredients seeds and merge together some amaris from bitters actually the age in oak barrels for that purpose so you don't have an overcoming flavor from one spice or one herb toward the other but you have like a whole spectrum of flavor but really really merging together in one, in one whole drinking experience that's what you have uh, so it's not like a subcategory i would say this is a, a category on its own honestly got it okay sure no it's uh that's fair and uh yeah, less than 30 grams of sugar. Yeah, for something that clocks in it, uh, is Fernet 50% ABV? Is that correct? Is Fernet is 39. 39, ABV. oops. Yeah, 39 ABV. It started from a really higher ABV. The better, I mean, as I said, the process of uh, uh, excellence is also the process of availability and approachability. So the more we went into that time, the more uh, uh, research that we would make, we managed to create the same recipe, the same product, lowering down the alcohol content. So we tried to get more herb and spices, quality infusions rather than just alcohol. So this is one of the process, like starting from like a 50% ABV back in the day up to 39 today is a big step. Some other company decided to go even further than that and reduce into 20%, 15%, 60%. It doesn't, it ma doesn't matter. You know, this is their, their own choice. I see. Fun. So, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I think when I was researching for net uh, as a category unto itself, I think I saw that they typically range 39 to 50, but to your point, people can obviously get a little more playful. And so, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so people that know Fernet, 
uh, that know Branca in particular know it as this uh, big, bold, bitter elixir. And it was, to your point from the pharmaceutical end, it was, if my research is correct, uh, so it was originally introduced to kind of spur the appetite in people who might have been suffering from cholera who needed to eat and rehydrate. So that was kind of the the origin of the recipe. Is that correct? And then from there, it kind of began working its way into the Italian uh, kind of day-to-day diet. Yes, that could, we could say that that was something that made Fernabranca, the Fernet from Branca, be known to the a massive consumer uh, panel, like uh, uh, audience, it would say in Italy. Uh, Fernabranca was, yes, used and advised to be used during the cholera epidemic, specifically for the reason, stimulate the appetite, but also like kind of like it was good for your stomach, for your spleen, and so forth. So it was kind of used for that reason. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that Fernabranca was a family secret recipe, and people were using that even before cholera you know the branca family had this recipe in their hand far behind when that happened and so mm. it was like a, so it was still it was used for everything it was used as a like a, a panacea remedy uh, for everything you know before the meal after the meal people were going to uh, the branca family house and were actually requesting some of this um, elixir it was called like the branca elixir because it was good for everything it was good for the headache it was good for stomachache uh, so it was like it was a, had a wider range of use became famous and known to the the higher like the larger amount of people within italy specifically though for this reason there was something that kind of was the only thing working against the, uh, the side effect of cholera which was no eating at all and coughing and feeling sick and no recovering from the fever uh, so fernbranca was kind of making the body the body and people reacting positively to it so the, some doctors started, you know, advising to have like a small dosage every day of Fernabranca, especially for this reason. I'll tell you something, right? My grandma, even still today, if you go to her house and you had a big lunch or you don't feel well, before anything else, she tells you, have some Fernabranca. If it doesn't work, we go, we take <laughs> some medicine. So she, you know, she really advised you on that. You know, this, this was like, it's an old thing. It is an old people thing herb and spices especially bitterness you know we always believe and this is, is a right belief that bitterness in general are good for us and somehow it's true you know every every uh, every country every 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 people every, and every uh, uh, i would say uh, people in places in the world there's a connection between bitterness and cleaning your body you know, I remember my grandma after like Christmas, uh, after the Christmas, um, like big lunches or having like the day after we were having bitter salad, and bitter spices, you know, just to feel less guilty maybe, or just really to clean our body. So there was just always been a connection between bitterness and spices and herbs and purifying and making your body recover. So. Yeah. And, uh, and to the the growth, uh, and thank you for clarifying, clarifying all this. I did my research and clearly there's layers of it like, wow, existing even before that. So thank you. Uh, but now, like, I'm, I just, I'm marveling at, you know, because I, I certainly see that the levels that Branca seems to have ascended to, but like uh, the things I, you know, so one to see that you're in, I don't know, roughly 160 countries. But if I saw this stat, correct. It said something about that, I guess, Branca maybe uses like 15, 17% ish of the world's saffron, which is like when you're, when you're charting on a global level, that, that speaks to some serious production of product right there. Mm. Yeah, this thing has been going on since I joined the company 13 years ago. We are using 75% of the worldwide production of saffron, which is not really true. That I mean, uh, we okay. use a lot of saffron, 
Okay. Uh, we use a lot of saffron, and that, that saffron is specifically used for uh, alcoholic beverages, like extraction. Is a, is a specific type of saffron that kind of like tolerates that kind of extraction uh, and all kind of process. I cannot really say the number. I know by fact that every time I'm in Milano, I'm living in Milano, the factory is in Milano, I know there's a lot, a lot of kilos of saffron infusing in our factory so i know I, I use a lot can i say 75 percent? i don't know how much is the total percent of production suffering worldwide i know we provided suffering from middle east countries so this is the best suffering in the world uh, but i come from sardinia and we produce suffering in sardinia too but it's mainly used for local food to like to make like risotto to have like making a powder for for food colorant and food preparation so i cannot really like say that for sure Sure. Okay. You know what? And, uh, you know, me, me trying to lean on everything you read on the internet, it's usually uh, a bad, a, a bad call, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I honestly, I, it's, it's, it's interesting because those are information that got lost a little bit. And can, you can not really be precise on that. Uh, but it's interesting to see, um, there is an, there is an interest by people, uh, on these type of things, which means that people are more interested to the history, but also in the production and the quality and knowing where things are coming from. And this is very important when people uh, have that type of interest, the people are bringing cautiousness and what they're doing, what they're eating and how they're doing. And the, for a company like us, that we kind of, we, we really provide that as a guarantee of quality is important, which means that we are doing things properly. That's why we are still in the market after 200, 200 years, because we never disappoint people on the search of quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I always say that if you're, the path that you're pursuing is a path of quality, sooner or later you will meet Fernabranca and Fernabranca products. Yeah, yeah. So to meet to uh, meeting uh, for Net Branca, so for people that um, have tried it or have seen it, uh, you know, how is it? Obviously, in many cases, it could be jo- enjoyed neat. But what are some of the most common ways, you know, around the world you see people enjoying this product? Mm. I like the fact that you call it product. Uh, it is a product. It's not an ingredient. Means that uh, you know it's ready as it is. It's ready to be drink as it is. Mostly, it's consumed neat uh, because okay. this it wasn't meant to be a bitter for cocktails. So, where from the Branca was created, Bernardino Branca wasn't really thinking about at the Coleman at the Savoy Hotel making like a, an anky panky. So it was really, you know, it was it was a product so uh, Melis conception of course is like uh, like after a meal is a digestive or Fernabranca has digestive properties but also as an aperitivo uh, uh, like quality makes it stimulates your appetite so it really depends when you drink it and how you drink it if you drink it neat after a meal which is like sipping or shot or have a shot has a great digestive properties but if you drink it before the meal, allowed in some dilution with some soda or some soft drinks or some ice, that or some coffee maybe has like an aperitivo like quality, stimulates your appetite. So it has this duality role. I, I like the, the versatility of the product, which means that you cannot only it's not versatile on how you can use it, but also when you can drink it. So this is a great it's a great quality. Mainly, I would say that is like Fernandez Cola is the driver in the South America, especially in Argentina. So people mm-hmm. drink Fernandez with cola. It's a national drink. So whatever. Whenever you go in Argentina, in every bar, if it's a five-star hotel or the, like the, the, the most remote bar in Mendoza, you actually get a Fernet de Cola. It's the national mm-hmm. drink, which is a case on its side. We do like a, more than 40 million liters of Fernet with cola in Argentina, where we have a factory producing Fernet there. Uh, everything, everywhere else in the world is kind of like you have the bartender community, which is like a, a worldwide 
bartender community nowadays is the bartender handshake. So bartenders have in Shadow and Branca has a sign of recognition belonging of, of belonging to the same uh, category of the same uh, group. So like the, the hospitality people. So it's the bartender is the hospitality shot. Mainly consumer wise, wood wise is that is an after dinner, is a digestive, uh, is like after the meal, and this is how it is merely consumed. With some like uh, places like the Nordics, I would say Sweden, Norway, Denmark area, where it's actually a snack in the, the overnight. So they actually have it with a beer, beer and a shot of Fernabranca, beer and a shot of Fernabranca, which is a really big market for us. And but we know by fact that like especially like Denmark and Finland and Sweden uh, and Norway, they have a big connection with bitters. So there's the, the actually the palace is well connected with bitters. So this is what they drink mainly. But mainly I would say it's neat. Yeah, neat is that the, the thing. And then we have in the cocktail culture, we have some uh, uh, some cocktails like back from back today. And still today, bartender experimenting in making cocktails with Fernabranca, you know, starting from the 1897, I think the first cocktail appearance with Fernabranca has a brand okay. mentioned in the book. It was called, I think, L'Appetit. Then we had uh, the L'Appetit Italien. So we, then we have the Savoy Book Hotel with many cocktails with Fernabranca from the AB. I pick me up, and then, uh, of course, the uh, um, the Anki um, Panky and so forth. So mm-hmm. we had like uh, we had so many appearance on cocktail books. So Fernand Branca mentioned has as ingredient uh, for some certain cocktails. So. Uh, mainly is it, it kind of maintains this duality of a, of a product could be like a, it is a bitter yeah, in all the fact it is a bitter but also is like a fantastic product on its own mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah the i mean the mark of a a great product and one of the reasons i was excited to have this conversation is when a product almost seems to take on a life of its own and the organic life that seems to exist in the bartender community for Branca is really just, it is very impressive. And do you, has the company, because again, I, I gather it may have started more organically, but do you know how this began as this bartender's handshake or is it kind of uh, an unknown lost, lost in time? Well, I have some theories there. You know, things never start for one just one reason. You know, uh, I mean, but there's a spark that starts fire, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have few speculation on that, <laughs> if you allow me that, and some theory. I know by fact that everything started in the West Coast, uh, with, uh, in San Francisco area, where we had like very good like uh, people working from Branca back in the time that mm. were like. Uh, uh, promoting Fernabranca within the bartender industry. But that was because they saw something happening within the bartender industry, within that the, 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 the cocktail industry of bartending having shot of Fernabranca. So in, somehow we loop our attention into that and we try to push it a little bit, try to support in a little bit more the, the, that community back in the day in San Francisco. And then it spread all over the country. One of my speculations is that something, you know, for me, I know that Amarius and Vermouth in general, they had that, like a dark age in the hospitality uh, sure. industry, you know, back in the day, like we would say between the 80s and the 90s were forgotten product. Nobody was drinking Amari, nobody was using Vermouth, nobody was using this type of product. They were sitting there in the bar forever. So I kind of thought that because nobody was putting their attention to those products, uh, you could actually, as a bartender, as a person, you could offer them to your fellow colleagues without nobody telling you off in a way nobody was checking the stock on those products. So you can actually <laughs> <laughs> you can actually have that thing, you know. And I've been a bartender. I know how it works. You go to a bar and the bartender gives you a shot for free. And when it comes to your bar, you give them a shot for free and go on. So, you know, life goes on. Uh, and those were the products by me back in the day. Nobody was really caring about, you know. I remember being a bartender, my manager forced us to wait all the bottles every every weekend so to know how much product we were selling how many cocks that we were making and so forth and the only product we're not checking were those like bottles of marius and vermouth sitting on top of a coffee machine forever so that was the only thing we could actually offer without nobody telling us off or checking mm-hmm. on our stock 
somehow maybe this became something but because you know Fred Branca was like I managed to emerge within all these crowded products because of this complexity it kind of like we were they were doing like natural sampling of a product uh, and that is you know it, it became that because it's not easy to drink from a branca. It's an acquired taste. We know it needs right. an effort. It needs attention. Uh, it's because, it's, and because not everybody can do it. It's something that when you acquire and you know to do it, uh, you know, it, it is. It makes you feel different. It makes you that you own that drink. You own that experience. I was reading like a, a, an interview back in the day of a very famous American chef. I don't remember the name, but it was on the Times. And he was talking about his experience of traveling all over the world and doing TV programs. And apparently doing two different, those TV programs, uh, they make him try some weird food from wherever he was traveling to. And I remember he said he was in Asia, somewhere in Asia, and during the TV program, they make him try some very bitter, very, very bitter melon. I don't remember what it was. And he said that uh, during the interview, he was eating this melon, but of course he couldn't show that it was like really, really awful. <laughs> yeah. And he said that while having that melon, the melon really became more palatable, okay? But what it feels like bitter in the beginning, it feels like pride at the end. Mm -hmm. So kind of like, <laughs> this is what I explained in my own head, the experience of drinking from a branca, you know, uh, it's kind of something that you acquire once you manage it, once you own the flavor, once you know you can take it and you can manage it, you can uh, put aside all the edges and you can just feel that, that the qualities is something that you don't want to lose that experience you don't want to lose the capability uh, and and this is kind of like happens in everything that we do in our life when we acquire something different and complex and then we can enjoy just the pleasure of it i always say that uh, Fernand Branca is like the truth nobody likes the truth but once you get the truth you just want the truth once you update your, you upgrade yourself to a self-level conscious of appreciation, you either stay at the level or you grow, but you don't go back. And this is what happened with Fenerbahce, in my opinion. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, the whole idea that one, they weren't weighing the bottles. I, if I, I want that to be true so bad and it being like, well, Hey, well, we're going to have whatever is available, but yeah, I, I, I think in general, there's a great metaphor in life for this idea of when you endure something hard and yes, like the first taste of, of Branca, much like I've heard people say regarding a lot of, of Italian cherries, it's not, it's not love at first taste and it is really an acquired thing. And so there is something to cheersing and being a part of a club that's enjoying something that isn't always easy to enjoy at first so that's yeah that yeah. makes a lot that makes a lot of sense the most famous unknown club of the world that's right that's right as uh, I, i've definitely seen you uh, heard you uh, spout that one off before uh so to the uninitiated of bronca uh tell us quickly about uh for net coins and how do how do we all try to track down our first one assuming we're not collecting them yet well, one of the first rules of Fernet coins is you don't ask for <laughs> <laughs> So this is something that I say, but you get donated, you know, at some point happening, you receive one. And it doesn't matter, I mean, there are different occasions. Sometimes you get a Fernet coin because you participate to an event and you stay there and you learn everything about the brand and you drink the Fernet Branca. And then because you are a Fernet Branca fan or uh, you are at the event because you've been invited to an event, so maybe there's a chance you'd get a coin. Sometimes you get a coin from me or from our brand ambassador. There are like there are sometimes there are I call them the Fernet coin moments. Okay. Uh, you know, of people knowing about the coins but never asking for it because sure. they know it will arrive. Uh, and uh, you know, I remember once. I did a, a, a seminar, I was in Milano, I did a seminar to the group of bartenders, young bartenders. And after a couple of days, I was hanging in the bar with some guests, and I saw one of the guys coming to the seminar, 
uh, by himself, going to the bar. He didn't see me, so it wasn't there. For him, I wasn't there. Going to the bar and asking a glass of Fenebranca to the bartender, taking the glass, going to a chair, reading a book, and drinking Fenebranca. I went there. I said, this is a coin for you. It was, it was over the moon. He didn't expect that. <laughs> Sorry. But he got a coin because he made a choice on his own time, on his spare time, to drink from a bronca because he likes it, because he appreciates the liquid. So sometimes it's not a matter of how many cases you sell, how many liters you made, how many tattoos you have. is you expressing the appreciation for the liquid within your own potential, with your own maximum potential. That was his free time. That was his free day. He could have chose anything else. And he chose Fenebranca because he likes the liquid. And then for me, that is the person that deserves a coin. So I went there and I gave him a coin and said, okay, you're part of the family. You're a part of the people that respect and appreciate the liquid. So you need to have a coin in your pocket. Got it. That's great. I love it. Uh, I love that the company kind of took that leap uh again uh driving home this uh most famous unknown club is uh is is, is pretty is pretty awesome so yeah i love the demographic of people around me with the, the Fernabranca community i love it you know when you know we all diverse we're all different but we have in common this thing we can drink Fernabranca and we like it and that say to me that we are people that uh, doesn't matter how bitter he is, doesn't matter how hard he is, we overcome the prejudice of this and we take just take the best. And this is the thing is an approach that these people, as people that we drink from the Branca, we have generally in our life on anything happened to us. And I love that. And I, I proved that, you know, I've been doing this job for 13 years and all the people that I've met that love from the Branca and the respect from the Branca and the drink from the Branca as a product, that have this characteristic of being people that have this thing more. So that's why I'm still doing this job today. Mm-hmm. So uh, while today is the first time we've really technically met at uh, Tales of the Cocktail this year, I got to hear you uh, do your do a presentation and you were uh, talking about um, that, you know, we're fortunate now in a country like America to have like, you know, even things like t-shirts and magnets that say, Hey, if you're reading this, put your vermouth in the fridge. (laughs) Now in a place like Italy, uh, and all this is so we can get to talking about Carpano Antica a little bit, but you know, I I think, I, I think you said you were talking with the production staff about, uh, you know, uh, does Carpano go bad? And they were like, well, I guess, but why would you ever have it around for that long? Uh, so I guess my first question is, and I don't know how often you run into skunked, you know, a Mar, uh, a Carpano, but if someone is listening to this, because I meet people every day who are, who are really still unsure what they should be doing with their vermouth. Like if it's good stuff, you should just drink it. But do you have any leading indicators for what bad vermouth is going to taste like that's been open too long? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like about vermouth and vermouth in general, that you do need to be an expert on vermouth to appreciate vermouth, you know. Uh, Vermouth is a perfect balance between like wine, sugar, and botanically infused urban spices. So the same way you can like it and you can like appreciate it and drink it, uh, you can actually tell if it's not good. I mean, once you drink it, there are no vermouth that tastes weird or unpleasant. That vermouth should taste nice and balanced. So when you find, when you get this unbalanced flavor, like too much oxidation or too much of something, the vermouth kind of go, is going bad. Let's uh, not forget the vermouth is 75% is wine. Oh. It's a white wine, it's Vino Fiore, so it's the first press of the wine, so it's very delicate, stabilized at oh. 10% volume alcohol and pasteurized. So it really needs to be treated like a wine, you know, preserving properly. And once you open it, try to finish as soon as you can. The question to the, the guy I remember is uh, something that I always said, I never tired. You 
know, because always people ask me if they uh, if you need to keep your vermouth in the fridge. And in the beginning, when I asked this question to the production guy, they told me, yes, if you want to drink it cold. Uh, it was That's very right. clear for them. <laughs> yes, of course, you know, if you drink, just stick it in the oven if you want it hot. The way that, you know, for them was no, there was no like a, a, a problem of the product going off. Because for them, for Italian, like normal, like Italian consumer, once you open a bottle of vermouth, it just goes away like very, very fast. It's a wine, it's something that you enjoy. And especially you enjoy like cold because it's a little bit sweet. So it's a white wine with some like caramel, with caramel and burnt sugar in our uh, uh, case. Uh, and it needs to be a little bit cold so you can enjoy it better. Otherwise you have an overpowering flavors of bitterness and there's no balance so you need that temperature to make it more pleasant and approachable so for them it was normal yes put it in the fridge because it's better if you drink it cold it's not because it goes off so that was the point for them and the thing that i always get often asked was that how last how long a bottle of antica would last uh, once open like would it last more than three months? And I say it could last more than three months, but if you have a bottle of Antica open for three months in your fridge, close the bar and open a pizzeria. So this is the, <laughs> my advice was, <laughs> and I make like a point here, is the fact that vermouth belongs to your bar program. Vermouth belongs to your menu cocktail program. You either believe in your vermouth or you don't. I mean... You know, the vermouth are tools to work with, you know, no fancy product to have in your bar top. Uh, and don't take me wrong, I'm a, I'm a geek too, you know, I like to have the strange little things, you know, when I go to market and I see those guys with a microphone selling weird objects for the kitchen, I buy everything, you know, I have like a lemon squeezer that you screw into the lemon and you just like spray the lemon over, I have those weird knives that cut like even like a brick and the shoes that you can cut your salmon with that. I buy everything, but at the end of the day, I'm going to use always the same knife and always the same chopping board, always the same tools, because those are the tools that get the job done and I can rely on. You can have like thousands of products, but you're going to still use that rum to make your daiquiri. You're going to use that vermouth to make your Negroni, and you're going to make use that whatever whiskey to make your manata, because those are the tools that get the job done. Simple as that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh to kind of just paint like the spectrum that can exist in vermouth. So obviously we have Antica, which to my understanding is probably the first vermouth that it was created, what, for a king of Italy? Is that, is that, did I remember that correctly? Yes. Antonio okay. Valle de Tocarpa in 1782 created the, the product that today we call vermouth, a patent, a liquid that today we call vermouth. And back in the day, it was called the Carpano because the category didn't exist. And it was a fortified wine coming from uh, a tradition of Artemitic wines, therapeutical wines infused like with the Artemisia mainly, but unpleasant and not totally drinkable. He then took this old recipe of medicinal wine combining with this knowledge of medicine because it was coming from Biella, but it was working in Torino where it was like a patisserie tradition, very interesting and liquor making very interesting, so a little bit of sugar. And he mixed and matched the two traditions, the liquoristic tradition and the medicinal tradition, putting together, created this fantastic product that today we call vermouth. Uh, he was 21 years old in his spare time when while he was working, he was messing around with the urban spices, measuring exactly the right amount and adding spices to herbal uh, extract, creating this fantastic uh, bouquet of flavors and using the wine as a container. And the first production of the vermouth apparently was presented by a duke in Torino and brought from this duke told the, to the uh, king of Italy. The, the, the royal palace was just actually in front of the uh, Carpano, the Menegali mm. shop, which was the first shop where Carpano was working. So he got rid of this uh, bottle and he tried and he was impressed by the quality and by impressed by the fragrance. And he fell in love with this very nice 
product. It was also a therapeutical product because the vermouth, it was good need, but also still maintained the characteristic of a digestive and good for your body with the urban spices and bitterness. So it was, you know, suddenly it was love at first sight with the Carpano and the King Amadeo III in Torino. And when you are, once you have like a sponsor, like the king, of course, the success <laughs> is kind of secure. He declared the Carpano, the Vermouth and the Carpano, of course, being the aperitivo of the royal palace. And then from the royal palace went down to all the aristocratic endorsement around him. And then from that, everybody started, in Torino, started drinking the Vermouth for many reasons, because of the quality, but also because it was the first real Italian product that could be, could stand next to foreign products, like they're very popular at the time, about very for very few people, like port, Madeira, uh, the wine, sherry, and so forth. And vermouth was the first very product that could fill the gap of a very complex and nice and pleasant, sophisticated uh, uh, liquor that people could drink and be available. Uh So because like with, you know, 75% of vermouth is wine, there's a spectrum on wine flavor. There's clearly a spectrum on vermouth flavor. So uh, Nicola, I don't know if something like Antica versus uh, Punta Mes is, is a great example, but if someone was tasting two of your guys sweet vermouths uh Mm. what what are some of the different flavors they might or texture etc they might find in one versus the other just to understand the spectrum of flavor that's out there Mm. yeah i mean vermouth should taste like vermouth okay Okay. so it's not like a wine profile that really you can identify in the vermouth so you can tell there is wine because you get this minerality acidity and winey flavor but you cannot really tell which wine is that sure Uh, and this is something really important to say because today you have some vermouth producer that actually they are characterizing their vermouth according to the wine so those are wine driven vermouth and I'm not saying that doing that because they don't know how to make real vermouth. It's just a choice. Sure. So vermouth should taste like vermouth. It's not okay. like vermouth should taste like this wine or that botanical or that alcohol content. You know, vermouth should taste like vermouth. And 75 is a big, of course, chunk of pr- proportion within the bottle. Uh, still, the wine doesn't have to affect the flavor. Wine, the wine there is a container. It contains and is there to maintain and, uh, and collect all that uh, nice and interesting complexity coming from spices and herbs and roots and barks all together. Uh, when the wine maintains that, like, can, can like maintains that well balanced and, and, and not overpowering the drink itself. So you can still get the nice acidity, as I said, the minerality, this nice wine is was the wine is something really common to us. You know, it's approachable because there's some familiarity with wines. Everybody drank wine in Italy at some point. So this is something that we recognize and it is very easy for us to approach. So the wine is there also to make this drinking experience as approachable as possible. Now, Antica Formula versus Puntemes, we are talking about two different uh, like uh, sports here. We are falling to the still the Italian sweet vermouth, where you have Antica Formula, the old recipe, which is the closest thing that you can drink today to the first vermouth ever created by Antonio Benedetto Carbon in 1786. So this is that is a time machine. Drinking Antica Formula is drinking time. You're drinking experience and you're drinking time. So this is you have this nice uh, vanilla flavor, some spices, some cloves, some uh, incense, and matches, and saffron. So this old complexity. Today is like a, Antica Formula is like a, uh, the benchmark or reference on how vermouth should taste like today. Okay. So everybody making vermouth is aiming at Antica Formula, uh, just like just have a, as, as a goal to reach. And which is kind of impossible, of course, because of the uniqueness and the way we make it is so complex, it's so hard to replicate. 
but it is the perfect expression of a authentic formula. It's like it's the perfect execution of a very complex exercise, which is the exercise of making the vermouth, okay? Uh, and then you have Punta Mes. Well, Punta Mes, we have to understand where is Punta Mes is coming from and why Punta Mes is Punta Mes, you know, the, the origin of the product. Uh, because Punta Mes was born as a product because there was a trend into it in at some point, like in the 18, 1830, 1840, of people drinking vermouth as an aperitivo, of course, but willing to have a more complex and depth uh, and that and bitter experience. So the bartender bars were adding bitters to the existing vermouth on mm. the bottle. So there was a trend of making like a, the first appearance of cocktails. Can we say that you know a vermouth is a cocktail of its own? You have the bitter, you have the alcohol, and you have the wine. The complexity is a cocktail in the bottle. And Punta Mes was born because of this trend, and Carpano decided to recreate this trend within the bottle, so it was ready for everybody to appreciate a different style of vermouth so in a way that punta mes is a different style of vermouth uh, which has a bitter edge with a more one wood more quina and chinchona bark extract and some other like roots and and, uh, and and botanicals that make the drinking experience of punta mes a little bit more complex and and, and diversify from antica formula well First, uh, thank you for helping me clarify my thinking, because you're right. It, it, in my basic understanding of vermouth, it is uh, certainly usually calling on a, for a more neutral wine. And then obviously we are adding flavor, spices, botanicals. But this idea of the wine as the vessel that we are flavoring is a great reminder of um, the, the distinction of how I should talk about vermouth. So, so thank you for that. And for both of those description in terms of how Puntemis uh, came into to being right there. That's helpful. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So I have one or two other things in mind, but Nicola, is there any, <laughs> anything on your, on your end of things we haven't, we haven't covered that you'd love to to chat about it all today. Um, I mean, uh, if you ask me, I can talk for hours. I can sure. really. <laughs> that could be like a, a second season podcast. <laughs> we can go on forever. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, you know, we are we are squeezing like 177 years of history from the Tilly Distillery plus. 237 years of history of Carpano. So it's like really like 500 years almost of history <laughs> within like a half an hour. But there are many things, you know. I think one thing we have to understand, especially about Vermouth, and this came out last night that I had a fantastic dinner here in New York with a, a nice fellow bartenders, you know. Uh, we tend to overcomplicate everything and also on Vermouth. And I think this is a mistake we should uh, we should not do. Uh, vermouth was created for people to give the chance to people to go out and drink something easy and approachable. I was you know, with, I don't want to overcomplicate. Let's not overcomplicate a category that is simple as it is, because we might uh, risk to scare consumer. Uh, we wanna we want them to instead of approach. The vermouth category and make them feel they can do it easily and they don't have to be we don't it's not a complex thing to do and last night this is something really emerged on that you know vermouth should be drink neat i always advise people you know have a good vermouth in your bar open it and serve it neat give it like a general dosage like 8 ml or whatever you think is appropriate with some ice and soda and maybe some flavored soda and just changing the speck on top of the glass makes it different maybe have some bergamotto peel or some orange or whatever some pineapple whatever so you just need like these two elements you have a fantastic drink in front of you and people can enjoy and have a fantastic aperitivo experience so let's not overcomplicate a vermouth that is already complicated you know the recipe the ingredients the botanical groups and how the botanical group act within the vermouth is a very complex a complicated exercise but what we have at the end is this simplicity and a very approachable drink 
it's like I always compare verbal, especially antique formula, to uh, 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 gymnastic on TV. You know, you know when you see those girls or guys making amazing evolution in front of you, like front flip, back flip, and they look and make looks so easy. You know, they look. They make it look so easy in a way that you think you can do the same. Of course, if you try, you break your neck. <laughs> so this is the same thing. It's a perfect execution. You know, what is in front of you is a perfect harmonic execution. So well made, so perfectly executed. It looks easy. This is the vermouth. Okay. Behind that, there are years, years of trials, of failures, of success. But that moment for you, the delivery, just the quality. This is what we do. We deliver only the perfection of glass. So you don't have to think about anything else, just to enjoy the moment. And your body just receives this and is just pleased by himself, by himself by drinking this product. So this is what is vermouth for me. So just enjoy, just not overcomplicate it. And try as many vermouths as possible. If I can give an advice to people listen to your podcast, try as many vermouths as possible. Find a vermouth that is good for you and then get the job done. The vermouth calls the drink. It's not the other way around. It's not the drink calls the vermouth. So choosing the right vermouth, that is that always choose the right drink for that. Uh, it, it does feel like a great place to end in terms of also coming full circle to your comment about excellence. You know, there is the time that has been in love that has been invested in perfecting and continuing to master these products and to not overcomplicate them because they're already, uh, you know, as they should be in the bottle. And so, yeah, I, I think it's fun to see the rise of cocktail culture that we have, but at times some things are just are just ready to go as is. So I I appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, well, you know what, uh, Nicola, this has been great. Thank you for joining me. And Thank to this point, to this point, I need to dig more into the 500 plus years of total history, and uh, hopefully one day we can do it again. So, uh, so thanks oh, again yes. for taking the time. Plenty today. things to talk about it. Plenty Indeed. things. Indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you all listening today as well. Thank you. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at decodingcocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon and happy cocktailing.